I'll tell you what I was thinking about when we wrote it. I was thinking about the Wobblies. That's director Julia Reichert. Her call at the 2020 Oscars for Workers of the World to Unite went viral. She and Stephen Bogner won for their film American Factory. Julia's death from cancer on December 1st at the age of 76 made headlines across the country. Most of them called her an Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker. And that was certainly true. She was a four-time Academy Award-nominated director for 1977's Union Maids, Seeing Red, Stories of American Communists in 1984, The Last Truck, Closing of a GM Plant in 2010, and American Factory, for which she won an Oscar in 2020. But I thought Julia would have really gotten a kick out of the New York Times, which called her documentarian of the working class. Back in 2020, Julia talked with 9to5 co-founder Karen Nussbaum about how her working class upbringing informed her work as much as her left politics. She offered advice for chronicling the pandemic and told about what it was like to give that acceptance speech at the Academy Awards in 2020. The interview, originally published in the American Prospect in April of 2020, ran in two parts on the Labor History Today podcast that year. And we've got a link to the first part in the show notes. Here's part two with Karen Nussbaum. So let me ask you about union maids. Yeah. Uh, why did you decide that that people needed to hear about yeah, organizing, yeah. or that women organizing in the 30s? Why, why was that important to you then? Well, let's see. So that was shot in 74 and came out in 76. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just so you know, the actual three interviews were shot in 74. Uh But then with editing and doing activist work and filmmaking not being our main thing, actually, came out in 76. Mm -hmm. I think it has to do... I'll go personal and larger. Personal, it has to do with me having become aware of what the meaning of the word class is when I was in college. Uh Like in the later part of college, you know, we all started studying Marx and Engels and Che Guevara and all those people. And so I started realizing that class wasn't something to be embarrassed about or or pretend your parents did something much more important than they really did, like lie about yourself, which I had done for years in order to get into that educated world of college people, that class was something that was a motivating force in history, right? Mm-hmm. And it was important. Yeah. And so working class people became important in an in uh-huh. intellectual way to me, not just that I felt connected, but in an intellectual way. Even though I was from a working class background, I didn't know working class history. I didn't know anything about women in, well, we were all discovering that women were agents in history too, but that had been 100% written out, right? Yeah. We had no clue who were the important leaders. I wanted to get to know my progenitors, uh-huh. and I wanted other working-class women. But on the political, on the larger side, historical context-wise, the movement was... So I was a New American Movement, uh-huh. and which is a socialist feminist organization that had some power and strength at that point. Our part of the movement was beginning to be focused on get a job in a union, uh-huh. get a regular people job, you know, 
talk about being a leftist. It's okay. You know, talk about socialist feminism, feminism, socialism. What are those ideas? You know, we could do that. I mean, it disappeared for a long time, and now with Bernie, we can start talking about it again. There's been a long gap there. We wanted a tool for the movement as we knew it. Uh I mean, literally, we wanted a tool for the movement as we knew it to bridge the gap between the union movement and the women's movement. It's Uh It's a similar impulse to 9 to 5, to be honest. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. So we knew our colleagues in NAM were getting regular people jobs and union jobs and, you know, fighting in a more mainstream way. You know, we never became one of those vanguard parties. We all went through yeah. those discussions, yeah. right? And we decided, yeah. no, that was not going to work. That's, that wasn't us. That wasn't me. Uh-huh. That wasn't my partners. We were learning about unions and the importance yeah. of organizing working class people. And how do you do it? You don't do it through a vanguard party. That is not going to work, we felt. That right. seems silly, actually, to me, because I know so you know about that. So is that why you had so much of a focus on the tactics, which I loved? That's what spoke to me about the film. Was about union mates. The, the wonderful detail of the tactics that they used in organizing yeah. the women in their workplaces. Well, yeah, because we wanted our people to pick up on that. Yeah. But also, right. they were incredible storytellers. Honestly, yes. I don't think we were... Like with 9 to 5, I was very aware of focusing on tactics, right? Because yeah. now I understand more what it means to build a movement and that you need tactics, you need strategy, you can fail, you can succeed. But back then, I think it was honestly a little more... If we got tactics and strategy, we lucked out because I think it was more... These are great storytellers. Yeah. Let's sit at their feet and get their stories. You know, yeah. like literally we read the Staunton Lynn book, uh-huh. the Allison Staunton Lynn book. Yeah. And our friend in Nam, Miles Mogulescu, had made like a very crude little videotape. He was uh-huh. in Chicago. He had gone to the University of Chicago uh-huh. and he had sat them down and just did a little interview with each of them. And we saw it. He showed it to us on the back porch of somebody's house here in Dayton. And we were like, wow, these are good women. These are good stories. But it was so crude, you know, it, and it was, you know, we, it was just a little videotape. So we said we should really do it right, you know, do the interviews with two cameras and really do yeah. two or three hours a person. But honestly, we did no research. I didn't read a single book other than the Staunton Lynn book, Staunton and Alice yeah. Lynn book. And we sat down with them. We literally met them, set up the cameras and shot I mean, it wasn't like with you guys where we read everything we could find and previous interviews and, you know what I mean? It wasn't like that. Luckily, these were three incredible storytellers. But then we did the research. Here's the thing. We did the research afterwards. That's why it took two years. Like once we got that, Mm -hmm. I felt like I'm a research nut now, you know. Anyway, not to go into this too much, but the photographs that we started finding of that period like in labor history, I finally got some labor history books and started reading them and saw right. the pictures of of that period, the 30s with women with baseball bats in their hands and National Guard right. with guns. And I'm like, what the hell happened? You know, uh-huh. so then that led to researching at the National Archive and the Library of Congress and finding all that film footage and learning about labor history 
like on my own, kind of reading books and mm-hmm. going to all these places and putting it in a film. I wish I could say, wow, you know, we thought about, we had to include all the strategy, but honestly, we, we that's not true. I, I think we just thought it was great stories and we did want to make it useful to the movement, but I think they did that naturally. I don't want to take yeah. too much credit for that, really. No, I, I hear you. And, <laughs> um, and it is the combination of these fantastic stories and the, the unbelievable footage that you captured. And it's what makes the film just zip by. It's a, yeah. a very a compelling visually. Yeah, yeah. And nobody had seen that footage. It wasn't like it was in a lot of other films. And the National Archive staff and the Library of Congress staff were like, they saw us come, you know, for weeks, you know, with that film. With with Seeing Red, it was years, because that really has amazing footage. We wanted to make it entertaining, and we wanted to make it come alive. And just the interviews wouldn't quite do that. I mean, that's where the filmmaker comes in. Yeah. Right. When we did test screenings... When we sprinkled in a little bit of archival moving footage, not just stills, people in their yeah. seats, you could see it, would like sit forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you kind of knew as a filmmaker that you needed more of this to make this lively. But I will say, we we never thought of it as a film for film festivals or television. We thought of it as a tool for the movement, just like growing up female, with different mm-hmm. purpose, which was put in the hands of fellow sort of democratic socialists, women's movement, labor movement, and see if we could bring them together, right? Bring the women's movement into seeing the progenitors who are working class and powerful, and bring the labor movement to say, like, honor women and put women into leadership. And and what (laughs) made these films so powerful that they become award-winning? I think we inherently have a sense of storytelling. Good story, archival footage, untold story. I think that's mm-hmm. a really big one. I don't know what to say. It's a good movie. It's lively. It's an untold story. It has great characters. It has all the things a good movie should have, yeah. even though it's and, black and white. You know, maybe and, that, yeah. it, the, that you're making a film that was it's an important story for you, and right. that comes out in the quality of the film in some way. But. Well, you know, they all are, though, Karen. All yes. the, Every single one of them I would not make unless it were important to me personally. Yes. And I didn't know yeah. that I realized that at the time, but looking back, 100,000%, they're all come out of some need or urge or question, you know, like seeing red, you know, comes out of how are we going to sustain a movement through hard times? Right. You know, and again, this question, are these people for real? That was a very big question in seeing red. Mm -hmm. Are these people actually fighters for the right or were they traitors and spies? I mean, honestly, we didn't really know when we started. The yeah. only person we knew, as I recall, who had been a member of the Communist Party was Dorothy Healy. Mm-hmm. And we could see she was totally for real. Yeah. You know, even though she's a little imperious and clearly a leader type, you know. Yeah. But we could, we could tell that she, on a gut level, really cared about people. She has natural yeah. leadership abilities, but it's like you. You have some incredible natural leader abilities. 
at the same time, we know you care about people. Getting back to the good storytellers, of course, one of the hallmarks of your films are the unbelievable interviews that you get done. The, yeah. <laughs> you, you've already said that the three women in Union Maids took care of that themselves, they, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you have these, sometimes with unbelievable challenges, like in Last Truck, you conduct interviews through a car window as right. people are driving out of the parking lot or, you know, with Chinese workers with whom you don't speak the same, you know, have this huge cultural gap. Yeah, yeah, right. So uh-huh. how do you do that? How do you overcome those kinds of obstacles? And why is that so important to you? Of course, because I want the audience, there's things about the audience, but I'm thinking it goes back to, I am just, for some reason, um, very curious about what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. Why do I get such good interviews? It's because I invest the time. Like, we don't just interview people once. Mm-hmm. Those interviews in, in American Factory, for example, or The Last Truck, where we developed those relationships over months. And we, yeah. we showed, you know, we would stop in at people's house or we would bring, like to Lion, we would bring people a cup of coffee in the morning and just sit down and talk. Yeah. Time, 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 investment in time, and people realize you actually care about them. You know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. You know, it goes yes. beyond that you have a function. You're a filmmaker. You want to capture a story. It's like you care about them. Mm-hmm. And you don't care about everybody, being, being honest. You know, there are certain people you care more about, but you still try to be representative. So you put in a lot of time, and you repeatedly interview people. We interviewed the chairman seven or eight times. Mm-hmm. And um, like pretty much almost every time he got to the U.S., something one of our producers was just looking over. I'm just going to give you this as a side. Was just yesterday he was saying he had looked over a lot of the long interviews we did with the chairman because he's looking. He was looking for something he was writing about, and he said he was amazed at how much in the transcripts was not talking about the factory at all. Was talking about his children and how his family reacted to him coming to America and how uh-huh. he deals with American food and what keeps him up at night and, you know, just all this other stuff that just shows an interest in him. Yeah. As opposed to, we also ask the tough questions. Well, how are you dealing with the union? Why are you opposed to it? What about unions and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Economically, how are you dealing with the lack of profit and, the, you know, all those kind of questions. But it was always based on, like, how are you doing, you know, and how's it going? And this is how it's going for us. And, you know, so I think it's all about, like, the fact that we live in the area where we make our films in general, you know, not seeing red and not even union maids, although, again, that was like, you sit down and talk for two hours and say bye. But with even seeing Red, we always saw people numbers of times and sat down and did, we, we either stayed with them or nearby. You know, it was product of a relationship. This, yeah. And definitely with truck and definitely with factory. Those are all people we spent a lot of time with. They're not just figures of like, here's a globalization person. This is how it's affecting them. It's like, no, it's Bobby. It's Jill. You know, it's it's people. Julia, there's a theme in your films of no regrets. Is this a theme in your work? Does that yeah. resonate with you? It does. It does. 
Boy, but I hope I haven't imposed my own life story on other people's life stories on, on, and on the films. Because I feel that. I feel yeah. that a thousand percent. Like, you, it's like Bill Bailey says, you know, don't let them walk over you. You yeah. know, cough or something. Let them know you're here. You know, all these people yeah. saying like, like in Seeing Red, like, no, I don't regret the life I've led. And the same with Katie and Union Mates. Yes. No, my family may, you know. I feel that way too. I feel that way 100%. Like, I don't, I'm glad I wasn't on the sidelines. And I'm yeah. glad I'm still not on the sidelines. I found a way to be not on the sidelines of history, of people, of, you know, and I have a strong identity with people in the labor movement and in the women's movement. I feel like I swim in that same current. And we've taken our knocks for sure. We continue to. No regrets. When I go to my grave, I don't want to look back with a sense of, wow, I should have done this or I should have done that. And I don't have that feeling. I'm thinking over those three women and union maids and all the people I knew in seeing red. What is that one woman said? I feel like part of the mainstream of life. When I show Union Maids and The Last Truck together, mm -hmm. it's very hard. People are really aware that the labor movement was this feisty, broiling wow. over thing, and that, you know, that people were drawn into it and people fought, and yes, it was hard, but they look at all they won, and we all can say that, you know. The, we won the weekend, we won the end of child labor, we won social security, blah, blah, all that stuff. But then we were so disheartened by the workers. There was no sense of fight back. There was no yeah. sense of we got to organize. There was no sense of I don't care what the union says, we got to speak up. There was no sense of like anything. It was a sense of being discouraged, beaten down. Gee, I guess we just got to accept it. What was the most gratifying um, aspect of working on Nine to Five, and how did that? How did your view of the project change over the many years that it's taken yeah. to finalize? I love the approach of Nine to Five. That it was about empowering women. Mm -hmm. That it was, and you saw that with almost every interview you did. These clever ideas that were, as Adair puts it, like organic, mm -hmm. right? I love that line. That line was never going to go out of the film, you know? Uh -huh. Like, we have to think about our community and build our movement organically. I think 9 to 5 did a wonderful job, and it's a great example to the women's movement, uh -huh. any movement, right? Mm -hmm. Build it, look at your community, look at their needs, and build it from there with, you know, yeah. smart leadership with maybe bigger goals in mind. But yeah. so build the movement organically, empower women, not just organize women, you know, not just like get them to vote for something, which of course yeah. is organizing and is educating, but really in a much bigger sense, taking this community of people who were you all recognized that women call themselves as second-class citizens then. You also understood that you had to organize for women's power. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just yeah. a matter to me of getting everyone to vote for the union. You, you had to have leaders who were women 
who were empowered, and a lot of them rose to the occasion, had leaders that cared about them, that cared about them as women, that understood the struggles of women. Like when Carol Sims says, she joins the picket line, and then she says, I got interested in change, and I became an organizer. And there's a lot more to that story, but right. that's the basic thing, you know. I have one last question, and yeah. it's an easy one. How did it feel to say Workers of the World Unite? Oh, that was great. Of 24 million people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to say, it was great. It felt wonderful. It felt scary. Steve and I, yeah. we knew we had to do that. The question was how to include it. It had to be 45 seconds, the entire thing, with thank yous and everything. So I got the mic first, and which was planned. And you know, I talked about how workers in China, workers in America, workers are having it tough. But things will get better when workers of the world unite. I mean, it just sort of flows, right? Yeah. But it's actually quoting Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto, which I wasn't thinking about. You know what? I forgot. I was thinking, I'll tell you what I was thinking about when we wrote it. I was thinking about the Wobblies. I think of it as an old, like, radical labor movement slogan. But then people immediately started saying, I'm quoting the Communist Manifesto. Steve and I had rehearsed a number of times sitting, and we got there early, and we sat in our seats, and we're surrounded by other documentarians, and we're all hugging, and because we all got to know each other. We rehearsed the whole, how far does he have to step out to allow uh -huh. room for me with this huge ass dress on? <laughs> and and, to, and I, we practiced walking up, and I had to clutch both parts of the dress, because I had a crinoline. It was like a prom dress. And, and I had to practice like not tripping over the dress. Honestly, that was, I had two things in mind. Don't trip on the dress, and get to that mic, and in a most calm, passionate, sincere. organic, sincere, yeah, way, yeah. just get those words out. Get those, like, 20 seconds or whatever it was of words out. And do it in a way that just feels like I'm just the nicest person, and I'm saying something that's so logical. <laughs> Well, so that's what it was. Run, it was a huge hit. So, <laughs> Julia, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. It's uh, just a, a wonderful interview, and I can't thank you enough. Well, thank um, you, and thanks for this. Was great. This was fun. Thanks for listening. Director Julia Riker talking with Nine to Five co-founder Karen Nussbaum. Julia died on December first. We've got a link to part one of this interview in the show notes, as well as a link to Karen's interview with Julia in The American Prospect. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1869. That was the day a new union named the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor was founded. It started in Philadelphia as a secret society of tailors, but soon the Knights expanded to workers in other trades. The Knights' unions were vertically organized. This meant each union included all workers in a given industry, regardless of craft. This was a different philosophy from most unionism of the time, which focused on craft-based organizing. The Knights also accepted workers of all skill levels, as well as women. African Americans were also accepted after 1883, although often in segregated locals. The most well-known Knights leader, Terence Powderly, took office in 1879. By 1886, the group had grown to more than 700,000 members. The Knights championed the cause of 
the eight-hour day. While the union supported boycotts and arbitration, it remained very weary of strikes as a tactic. The Knights did support the Chicago general strike for the eight-hour day that started on May 1st, 1886. After the bomb incident at the rally in Haymarket Square, the Knights were unfairly singled out for blame. Due to the backlash over Haymarket, the Knights' membership suddenly and dramatically declined. The widespread repression of labor unions in the 1880s led to the union's demise. The newly emerging American Federation of Labor replaced the Knights of Labor at the head of the labor union movement. The AFL focused on organizing by craft as opposed to industry. But the Knights of Labor had helped to show that inclusive unionism was possible. Labor must reap what labor does sow. Labor must reap what labor Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Our team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time.